BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, international man of misery, returned from the old world to the new, uh, now residing for the next hour and a half in Savannah, Georgia. I'm on my way to Denver today. I've been home for a couple days. I have a flight to catch. I'm heading off to Denver to do the state reunion show, and not a moment too soon because, my God, the reason one leaves Savannah, uh, particularly in the summer, is because of the heat, and you forget just how physical the heat is. It is an oppression. It is a uh, it is a kind of uh, madness here. Um, yesterday it was it was so warm you could smell it. I don't know if that makes sense, but you could smell the heat. It's not that it's not that the city itself was scented. It's that it seemed to me that the heat, the hotness, had an odor that may have just been the water in the air, of which, which is considerable. The humidity, as I'm sure you know is profound. Um, and yet, and yet, I don't mind it, as odd as that sounds, because I'm mostly inside, and then, you know, I'll take the doggies out for a walk. We'll go out there, we'll sweat it up a little bit, come back into the air conditioning. It's fine. I keep forgetting that uh, the heat actually is fine, because you're not in it that much. And one thing that uh, Savannah has, that London does not, plenty of air conditioning and ice. God, they're skimpy with their ice in Europe. It's like they it's like they just don't even have ice making technology or something. I don't know why I don't know what why they're so opposed to frozen water in the old world. I don't know if they think it's too bourgeois. I don't know what they think. But my God, you ask for you ask for a couple of ice cubes or or I mean you can't you couldn't ask for a glass of ice. 
they'd have to charge you 500 euros for something like that. But yeah, they're, they're just, God, they're just skimpy with the ice over there. Here, I got all the ice I can handle. I got ice coming out the ears, the whole living room, up to my knees in ice. Actually, when I got home, I, I was astounded to find that my dear boy, Elijah, had the ice maker turned off on the freezer. What the hell was he thinking? He hasn't had ice in five months. It didn't concern him. I don't know. What is it with people and ice? Ice, you know, the simplest of creations. Uh, and yet, makes everything better. Ice, ice, so nice. I'm going to write to the Ice Council and see if they want to uh, adopt that particular slogan. One of the things I'm stressed out about is that, uh, you know, for the state show, i got to learn all these lines. I'm probably, I don't know, 50% of the way there, something like that, and the show's in a few days. But I'm assuming, not that this is interesting to anybody other than me, but once we, once we get it up on its feet and we're rehearsing, the lines will come rather quickly. That is my dream, and it is dreams that we are discussing here with An American Tragedy, at least in this first part of the book, book one of An American Tragedy, because you can't really have a tragedy, can you? unless you have something to contrast it with. And I guess the opposite of tragedy is comedy, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a general sense of happiness and well-being, which our titular hero, Clyde Griffiths, is experiencing at the moment. It seems like Clyde is emerging as this story's protagonist, at least in this part of the book. It is, as you know, a rather lengthy tome. But we've been following Clyde's progress as he has ascended the, uh, the, the, the ranks of the employed from unemployed and, and, and wastrel singer of hymns on the street to assistant soda fountain clerk to now just a, a proper bellhop at the fanciest hotel in town. And we've been, uh, we've been experiencing all of his glory, um, we spent some time looking at examining his duties and how he gets his tips and the sort of things he does. And it's all been very exciting, you know, as he jingles the, the coins in his pocket. I can hardly wait to get back to it. So let's get back to it. Why don't we? We'll pick it up with a brand new chapter today, Chapter 7 in American Tragedy. And so... Of all the influences which might have come to Clyde at this time, either as an aid or an injury to his development, perhaps the most dangerous for him, considering his temperament, was this same Green Davidson, than which no more materially affected or gaudy a realm could have been found anywhere between the two great American mountain ranges. Green Davidson is the name of the hotel. Its darkened and cushioned tea room, so somber and yet tinted so gaily with counter, countered, I mean, I mean, how dare I? The word is colored and I said countered. Um, all I can do is apologize to my listeners. I, I know you're, you, you're likely to cancel your subscription to this podcast after hearing that bastardized word come from my lips. It's not even a word, but, but the first syllable there is just horribly offensive. 
and I apologize. It's so gaily with colored lights, was an ideal rendezvous, not only for such inexperienced and eager flappers of the period who were to be taken by a show of luxury, but also for those more experienced and perhaps a little faded beauties who had a thought for their complexions and the advantages of dim and uncertain lights. I wonder if, uh, you know, speaking of the ladies and how they might take advantage of certain rooms in certain places and the lights and such, contrasting the flappers with the more experienced doyens of the city. I wonder if Hester, also known as Esta, is going to make an appearance. Could be. Let's see. Uh, also, like most hotels of its kind, it was frequented by a certain type of eager and ambitious male of not certain age or station in life, who counted upon his appearance here at least once, if not twice a day, at certain brisk and interesting hours, to establish for himself the reputation of man about town, or rounder, or man of wealth, or taste, or attractiveness, or all. Now I'm going to have a little sip of tea. I mean, that's been one of the other great joys is coming home and firing up the old tea kettle and uh, the old familiar mugs and the familiar tea bags. And yowza, that's good tea. Mm -mm -mm. Yummy. Uh, it's bright and early here, you know. I'm trying to get this done before I go. Probably should have done it yesterday, but, you know, the heat was too smelly. And it was not long after Clyde had begun to work here that he was informed by these peculiar boys with whom he was associated, one or more of whom was constantly seated with him upon the hop bench, as they called it. Now that's a great little term, the hop bench, for the bell hops. And also because that's exactly what it is. You sit down, somebody rings a bell, and then you, just, you hop on up and you dash away. Hop. Hop. It's a good word as they called it, the hot bench, as they called it, as to the evidence and presence even here, it was not long before various examples of the phenomena were pointed out to him, of a certain type of social pervert, morally disarranged and socially taboo, who sought to arrest and interest boys of their type in order to come into some form of illicit relationship with them, which at first Clyde could not grasp. Well, that's, um, I'm just trying to think about this for a second. Certainly, and this is the first time in uh, the four books that we have read that we are uh, the, the specter of homo, homosexuality is raised, and certainly here it is raised in a not very favorable light, but um, its very presence being felt here is something of an aberration. Uh, you know, you've got these, uh, yeah, you got, you, you got these pretty boys sauntering into the Green Davidson looking for a little tryst. And who else are you going to look for it with that a fella and another, you know, young kid in a maroon uniform? Maybe Clyde's going to have himself a time. I don't know. It's exciting. The mere thought of it made him ill. And yet some of these boys, as he was now informed, a certain youth in particular, who was not on the same watch with him at this time, were supposed to be of the mind that fell for it, as one of the other youths phrased it. Well, I'm not sure what that means. Fell, fall for what? Some sort of trickery? And then you find yourself, you know, sucking a dick? Is that what it is? Some sort of dick-sucking trickery? Is that what we're supposed to believe? 
Or is it something else? It's a little confusing to me. And the talk and the palaver that went on in the lobby and the grill, to say nothing of the restaurants and rooms, were sufficient to convince any inexperienced and none too discerning mind that the chief business of life for anyone with a little money or social position was to attend a theater, a ball game in season, or to dance, motor, entertain friends at dinner, or to travel to New York, Europe, Chicago, California. And there had been in the lives of most of these boys such a lack of anything that approached comfort or taste, let alone luxury, that not unlike Clyde, they were inclined to not only exaggerate the import of all that they saw, but to see in this sudden transition an opportunity to partake of it all. Well, Mr. Squires had warned Clyde about this very inclination, had he not, with his stern talking to before he offered him employment, or I guess uh, upon condition of his employment, he said, look, kid, Keep your nose clean, because a lot of these boys, they, they get a little taste of luxury. The next thing you know, they're motoring about. They're, they're uh, powdering their wigs. They're donning their gloves. They're going out to theaters. They're meeting with fancy boys, and they have to be discharged. And Clyde, of course, had said, oh, no, not me, sir. Not me at all. But how many boys in his situation had said the very same words to Mr. Squires, only to find themselves out on the streets after some, oh, I don't know, dalliance with the darker side. Who were these people with money? And what had they done that they should enjoy so much luxury, where others as good seemingly as themselves had nothing? And wherein did these latter differ so greatly from the successful? Clyde could not see. Yet these thoughts flashed through the minds of every one of these boys. At the same time, the admiration, to say nothing of the private overtures of a certain type of woman or girl, who inhibited perhaps by the social milieu in which she found herself, but having means, could invade such a region as this, and by wiles and smiles and the money she possessed ingratiate herself into the favor of some of the more attractive of these young men here, was much commented upon sure you get these i mean you get these gals you know they've got a little money in their pocket and a little snuff in their uh, in their compacts and they're looking for a good time and who better to have an anonymous good time with than the kid in the monkey suit on the hop bench right you know it might throw the kid a wink in two bits and the next thing you know you're having a toss in the hay all of these temptations for clyde all of these uh, unsettling activities going on right under his nose. Seems to me that we're being set up here by Mr. Teddy Dreiser. We're being set up to understand Clyde's fall. Something is going to happen. Some terribleness will transpire that may cost him everything. That's what I'm looking forward to, you know? I mean, it is an American tragedy. Let's see what happens. Thus, a youth named Ratterer R-A-T-T-E-R-E-R, -E -E good name, Ratterer. A hall boy here, sitting beside him the very next afternoon, seeing a trim, well-formed blonde woman of about 30 enter with a small dog upon her arm and much bedecked with furs, first nudged him 
and with a faint motion of the head, indicating her vicinity, whispered, See her? Here's a swift one. I'll tell you about her sometime when I have time. Gee, the things she don't do. <laughs> the things she don't do. My God. I mean, that's a, that's a statement right there. That's a, that's a phrase that's fallen out of favor and maybe we should bring it back. Gee, the things she don't do. Is it, how, do you, how do you say it, do you think? Do you think you, you put the emphasis on don't, the things she don't do or the things she don't do? I think the things she don't do, meaning she does everything. Well, what about her, asked Clyde, keenly curious, for to him she seemed exceedingly beautiful, most fascinating. Oh, nothing, except she's been in with about eight different men around here since I've been here. She fell for Doyle, another hall boy whom by this time... Clyde had already observed as being the quintessence of Chesterfieldian grace and airs and looks, a youth to imitate for a while, but now she's got someone else. Really? inquired Clyde, very much astonished and wondering if such luck would ever come to him. Surest thing you know, went on Radderer. She's a bird that way. Never gets enough. Her husband, they tell me, has a big lumber business somewhere over in Kansas. But they don't live together no more. She has one of the best suites on the sixth, but she ain't in it half the time. The maid told me. This same Radderer, who was short and stocky, but good-looking and smiling, was so smooth and bland and generally agreeable that Clyde was instantly drawn to him and wished to know him better. And Ratterer reciprocated that feeling, for he had the notion that Clyde was innocent and inexperienced, and that he would like to do some little thing for him if he could. I suspect Ratterer, with a name like that, is going to lead him in directions we wish Clyde would not go. You know, it's a big maze out there for the rats, and a lot of times they go down uh, dead ends, and they end up stuck there. Or sometimes, perhaps even worse, they find the cheese. The conversation was interrupted by a service call and never resumed about this particular woman, but the effect on Clyde was sharp. The woman was pleasing to look upon and exceedingly well-groomed, her skin clear, her eyes bright. Could what Radler had been telling him really be true? She was so pretty. He sat and gazed a vision of something which he did not care to acknowledge even to himself, tingling the roots of his hair. Why don't we take a little break there? I gotta sip my tea and I gotta let Squash back into the house. He's been staring plaintively at me from just outside and, you know, he, he wants to come in. So we'll take a little break. Back in a moment here on Obscure. Back on Obscure, tea in hand. I just opened the door. It's uh, 9 a.m. and already oppressively warm out there. But again, it's a weird thing. I, I, I'd forgotten this from last year. Like, I don't really mind, you know? You dread it all year and then it comes and you're like, yeah, it's fine. Don't even sweat it. <laughs> That's a pun. So Clyde is, uh, you know, rhapsodizing about this blonde chick he sees Traipsing through the lobby, she's got her own suite on the sixth floor, apparently a lumber baron husband that she doesn't live with, and a, t and a, and a fondness for bellboys. Wow, that's a, 
boy, that's an ingredient for uh, ingredients for trouble, is it not? And then the temperaments and the philosophy of these boys, Kinsella, short and thick and smooth-faced and a little dull as Clyde saw it, but good-looking and virile, and reported to be a wizard at gambling, who throughout the first three days at such times as other matters were not taking his attention, had been good enough to continue Heglin's instructions in part. He was a more suave, better-spoken youth than Hegland, though not so attractive as Ratterer, Clyde thought, without the latter's sympathetic outlook, as Clyde saw it. And again, there was Doyle, Eddie, whom Clyde found intensely interesting from the first, and of whom he was not a little jealous, because he was so very good-looking, so trim of figure, easy and graceful of gesture, and with so soft and pleasing a voice. He went about with an indescribable air which seemed to ingratiate himself instantly with all with whom he came in contact. It's hmm, a weird phrasing. With all with whom. In him instantly with all with whom he came in contact. If I was Dreiser there, I'd figure out a better way to say that. With all with whom. It's just an, it's just an, it's just an, you don't want to have two wits in three words. That's bad math. Bad syntax is what that is, kid. You know, we don't look, we don't like to criticize the authors here on Obscure, although we do it all the time, because we do, in fact, like to do it. But this little clunky piece of writing, T. Dreiser, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. Somebody said, and I, uh, uh, I'm not sure who, I, and I apologize because I don't have the, uh, the comment in front of me, but somebody said they were taken a little back by the writing here on An American Tragedy as opposed to the other three books that we have read. And, of course, I have commented myself upon how the writing style is markedly different than those other two uh, European books and one, of course, American, that being Wuthering Heights. But this American writing style is different. I mean, it's just, it's just a little... It's a little more staccato, isn't it? It's a little rat-tat-tat. It's a little denuded. It's a little plain-spoken. And I like it. Uh, the, this other person was having some trouble with it. Perhaps, I think it was a she, she missed the more florid writing, the more ornate and bejeweled writing of those previous works. But for me, you know, I feel like I'm on home ground again. You know, I've returned home to the States, and here I am greeted with good old-fashioned American writing. You know, it's a kind of how how de do writing. It's just the facts, man. We're just going to come out here and we're going to say it. Not to say, and look, that sounds like I'm being patronizing. I'm not. I like this writing. I like that it's more direct. I like that it's a little more stripped down. It's no, it's no worse than any of the other writing. It's certainly as descriptive. We certainly, you know, we're getting a picture painted for us, aren't we? But there's something about it, something about this style that definitely feels... Um, singular, at least compared to the other three books that we have read. I think it has something to do with the times in which it was written and, and, and certainly something to do with the nation of its origins. Uh, where were we? Uh, we're talking about Doyle, you know. He went about with an indescribable air, yeah. The, oh, it was the with all with, with, all with he, whom he came in contact. The clerks behind the counter no less than the strangers who entered and asked this or that question of him. His shoes and collar were so clean and trim, and his hair cut and brushed and oiled after a fashion which would have become a moving picture actor. From the first, Clyde was utterly fascinated by his taste in the matter of dress, 
the neatest of brown suits, caps with ties and socks to match. He should wear a brown belted coat just like that. He should have a brown cap and a suit as well cut and attractive. One of the things that I'm noticing here in this book, again, as opposed to the others that we have read, is a real keenness regarding physical descriptions. We're getting a much clearer sense of um, physicality of people, I think, than we have in the other books. Even Frankenstein, Big Buddy, you know, we got the sort of the, the just the facts a aspect of it. We understood his, he was eight feet tall and, and cobbled together from different parts and he had, you know, horrible scars and whatever, but we didn't get a lot of, like, description of his physicality beyond that. Um, you know, we knew that he could kind of, you know, he had, like, Superman powers. He could, he could leap over mountains and such, but you know what I'm saying? It, it, it seems like uh, Dreiser is paying, or at least Clyde, let's say Clyde is paying a lot of attention to the way people look, and I wonder if that has something to do with the times as well, something to do with this American striving, that if you just dress for the job that you want, people will think, you know, then that's the job you should have. I mean, that's been the whole narrative of, of this episode, isn't it? I mean, talking about all the, the different types who, who uh, wander around the Green Davidson, you know, the, the flouncy boys and the fancy girls and the businessmen and, and, and the luscious blondes. We're getting a sense of what they look like and how they comport themselves, how they carry themselves in the world, and what must all that look like to Clyde Griffiths. Similarly, a not unrelated and yet different effect was produced by that same youth who had first introduced Clyde to the work here, Hegland, who was one of the older and more experienced bellhops, and of considerable influence with the others because of his genial and devil-may-care attitude toward everything, outside the exact line of his hotel duties. Hegland was neither as schooled nor as attractive as some, as some of the others, yet by reason of a most avid and dynamic disposition, plus a liberality where money and pleasure were concerned, and a courage, strength, and daring, which neither Doyle nor Ratterer nor Kinsella could match, a strength and daring almost entirely divested of reason. He interested and charmed Clyde immensely. As he himself related to Clyde, after a time, he was the son of a Swedish journeyman baker who some years before in Jersey City had deserted his mother and left her to make her way as best she could. In consequence, neither Oscar nor his sister Martha had had any too much education or decent social experience of any kind. On the contrary, at the age of 14, he had left Jersey City in a boxcar and had been making his way ever since as best he could. And like Clyde also, he was insanely eager for all the pleasures which he had imagined he saw swirling around him, and was for prosecuting adventures in every direction, lacking, however, the nervous fear of consequence which characterized Clyde. Also, he had a friend, a youth by the name of Sparser. <laughs> Sparser somewhat older than himself, who was chauffeur to a wealthy citizen of Kansas City, and who occasionally managed to purloin a car, and so accommodate Hegland in the matter of brief outings here and there, which, courtesy, unconventional, and dishonest, though it might be, 
still caused Hegland to feel that he was a wonderful fellow and of much more importance than some of these others, and to lend him in their eyes a luster which had little of the reality which it suggested to them. So Hegland, you know, he's a scamp, that kid. He's one of these, he's a bad boy, isn't he? You know, he's He's, he's Luke Perry on Beverly Hills 90210, just going gallivanting around the town, you know, little sneer on his lips, purloining uh, a car belonging to some wealthy Kansas City businessman. He and his buddy go tooling around in that, having themselves a final time. Do they not? Sure they do. Not being as attractive as Doyle, it was not so easy for him to win the attention of girls. Well, that's where you're wrong, Dreiser. Because girls love a bad boy. You know, they love some insouciant kid flipping the bird at society. I'm guessing Hagelin doesn't have any trouble at all. Plus, with that, you know, with that uh, New Jersey accent of his, he probably, probably comes across like some exotic bird to some of these birds. They're probably ruffling their feathers at him every chance they get. I'm guessing Hagelin, Hagelin does fine with the ladies. You know, Dreiser just doesn't know about it. Eglin, you know, keeps he plays his cards close to the vest, doesn't tell Dreiser everything. Dreiser comes, you know, sniffing around the Green Davidson, asking the Bell Ops for their stories. Hagelin demurs. What's this fancy pants writer coming around here asking about my love life? I might tell you, but it's going to cost you, kid. Well, Dreiser's not going to pay for that. It was not so easy for him to win the attention of girls, and those he did succeed in interesting were not of the same charm or import by any means. Yet he was inordinately proud of such contacts as he could effect, and not a little given to boasting in regard to them, a thing which Clyde took with more faith than would most, being of less experience. For this reason, Hagland liked Clyde almost from the very first, sensing in him perhaps a pleased and willing auditor. So, finding Clyde on the bench beside him from time to time, he had proceeded to continue his instructions. Kansas City was a fine place to be if he knew how to live. He had worked in other cities, Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, before he came here, but he had not liked any of them any better principally, which was a fact which he did not trouble to point out at the time, because he had not done as well in those places as he had here. He'd been a dishwasher, car cleaner, plumber's helper, and several other things before finally in Buffalo. He had been inducted into the hotel business, and then a youth working there, but who was no longer here, had persuaded him to come on to Kansas City. But here, Say, the tips in this hotel is as big as you'll get anywhere. I know that. And what's more, there's nice people working here. You do your bit by them and they'll do right by you. I've been here now over a year and I ain't got a complaint. That guy Squires is all right if you don't cause him no trouble. He's hard, but he's got to look out for himself too. That's natural. But he don't fire nobody unless he's got a reason. I know that too. And as for the rest, there's no trouble. And when your work's true, your time's your own. These fellas here are as good sports, all of them, all of them. They're no four-flushers and no tightwads either. Whenever there's anything on, good time or something like that, they're on, nearly all of them. And they don't mooch or grouch in case things don't work out right neither. I know that, because I've been with them now, lots of times. He gave Clyde the impression that these youths were all the best of friends, close, all but Doyle. 
who was a little bit standoffish, but not coldly so. He's got too many women chasing him, that's all. Also, that they went here and there together on occasion, to a dance hall, a dinner, a certain gambling joint down near the river, a certain pleasure resort, Kate Sweeney's, where were some peaches of girls. Oh, I love myself, a girl who's a peach, and so on and so forth. A world of such information as had never previously been poured into Clyde's ear, and that set him meditating, dreaming, doubting, worrying, and questioning, as to the wisdom, charm, delight to be found in all this. Also, the permissibility of it, insofar as he was concerned, for had he not been otherwise instructed in regard to all this, all his life long. Yes, I mean, his parents are people of the cloth, are they not? They don't want their their oldest boy running around gambling halls and going to Kate McSweeney's. By God, what happens with those peaches of girls? Nobody knows. What won't they do? They're always up for a good time over at Kate McSweeney's. Buy him a drink. The next thing you know, their petticoats are down or up. I'm not sure. I guess either would work. There was a great thrill and yet a great re-question involved in all to which he was now listening so attentively. Again, there was Thomas Radderer, who was of a type which at first glance, one would have said, could scarcely prove either inimical or dangerous to any of the others. He was not more than five feet four, plump, with black hair and olive skin, and with an eye that was as limpid as water and as genial as could be. He, too, as Clyde learned after a time, was of a nondescript family, and so had profited by no social or financial advantages of any kind. But he had a way, and was liked by all of these youths, so much so that he was consulted about nearly everything. A native of Wichita, recently moved to Kansas City, he and his sister were the principal support of a widowed mother. During their earlier informative years, both had seen their very good-natured and sympathetic mother, of whom they were honestly fond, spurned and abused by a faithless husband. There had been times when they were quite without food. On more than one occasion, they had been ejected for non-payment of rent. None too continuously, Tommy and his sister had been maintained in various public schools. Finally, at the age of 14, he had decamped to Kansas City where he had secured different odd jobs until he succeeded in connecting himself with the Green Davidson and was later joined by his mother and sister who had removed from Wichita to Kansas City to be with him. Well, there's a fine ute. You know, there's a kid who's making himself in the, making something of himself in the world. You know, uh, uh, he's got a no-good dad, faithless, abusive, doesn't have much formal education, finally at the age of 14, he says nuts to this, gets himself out of Dodge, which I believe is in Kansas, but in this case Dodge is Wichita, heads, heads over to Kansas City, gets some odd jobs, you know, finds himself at the Green Davidson where he's got some coins in his pocket, he says, mom, sis, come on over, I'll take care of you, I'll put you up, make sure you're warm and comfortable, that's a, that's a good son, you know. Probably not more than 17 years old, that kid, and taking cares with the family. I like it. And yet his name is Ratterer. I hope that is not 
foreshadowing. But even more than by the luxury of the hotel or these youths, whom swiftly and yet surely he was beginning to decipher, Clyde was impressed by the downpour of small change that was tumbling in upon him and making a small lump in his right-hand pants pocket. Dimes, nickels, quarters, and half dollars even, which increased and increased even on the first day until by nine o'clock he already had over four dollars in his pocket. And by twelve, at which hour he went off duty, he had over six and a half, as much as previously he had earned a week. And all of this, as he then knew, he need only hand Mr. Squire's one, no more, Hegland had said, and the rest, five dollars and a half for one evening's interesting, yes, delightful and fascinating work, belonged to himself. He could scarcely believe it. It seemed fantastic, Aladdinish, really. Nevertheless, at twelve exactly of that first day, a gong had sounded somewhere, a shuffle of feet had been heard, and three boys had appeared, one to take Barnes' place at the desk, the other two to answer calls. And at the command of Barnes, the eight who were present were ordered to rise, right dress, and march away. And in the hall outside, and just as he was leaving, Clyde approached Mr. Squires and handed him a dollar in silver. That's right, Mr. Squires remarked. No more. Then Clyde, along with the others, descended to his locker, changed his clothes, and walked out into the darkened streets. A sense of luck and a sense of responsibility as to future luck, so thrilling him as to make him rather tremulous, giddy even. To think that now at last he actually had such a place. To think that he could earn this much every day, maybe. He began to walk towards his home, his first thought being that he must sleep well and so be fit for his duties in the morning. But thinking that he need not re to return to the hotel before 11.30 the next day, he wandered into an all-night beanery to have a cup of coffee and some pie. And now all he was thinking was that he would only need to work from noon until six, when he should be free until the following morning at six, and then he would make more money, a lot of it, to spend on himself. End of chapter seven. Well, such delights as could never be imagined up to this point. Amazing, amazing things happening to Clyde Griffith, seeing the world through new eyes. All of it undoubtedly incredibly exciting to such a lad as this, to be a member of such society in so short a time, to be exposed to the highs and the lows, the elegant and the gaudy, and all of it tinged with a kind of mystery, and perhaps even a little bit danger, no? I mean, with a little money in your pocket, you can just stroll into any beanery in town, order yourself a cup of coffee and pie at any time of day or night. Who knows what kind of adventures one might have, what, what sort of scrapes one could get into, what kind of trouble one might find there on the wicked, wicked streets of Kansas City, M.O. The prospects for, Clyde's, for Clyde Griffith's future have never been so uh, broad, so great. He could go in any one of a million directions, could he not? Well, we already know he's going to find himself a 
brown cap to put on his head, and a brown coat with a fine belt. Do we not? He's going to spend on himself all right until he's one of those boys lounging around the green Davidson, making him making uh, an impression on anybody who would care to walk in. Say, who's that man about town? I heard that's Clyde Griffiths. He's always, he always has such fine clothing and socks to match. He can just see himself, can he not, being the object of their attention, throwing a wink to the boys at the hop bench. And some young kid, the same age as Clyde was when he started at the Green David, nudging the fella next to him and saying, You see that guy? That's Clyde Griffiths. He started on this hop bench just like us. And now look at him in his finery and plumage. They say he's got a suite on the sixth floor and he's not even in it half the time. What won't he do? What won't he do indeed? With Clyde Griffiths, I suspect if somebody turns his head the right way, he'll do anything at all, anything to make his way in this marvelous, marvelous world. And with that, let us conclude. I've got to get myself off the hot bench and into the hot shower. Get myself packed up for my trip to Denver. And so we will end there. We'll pick it up again on another, uh, well, let's just say it, marvelous, marvelous episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time. <laughs>